Chapter Forty Five of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A school course on the structure and life of insects. Methods of displaying insect structures to many people at once. I wish to supply hints for a short school course on insects. Besides supplying information on insects as a class, I propose to show how the structure of an insect can be made evident to a number of pupils at once, and this is the difficult part of my enterprise. The methods which I recommend will, I know, seem too laborious to most teachers, yet they have all been carried out successfully in my own classroom, and I see no reason why they should not be practiced in some of the better equipped schools. An oxyhydrogen, or better still, an electric lantern, is required. The teacher should be practiced in the simpler methods of demonstrating and mounting insect structures. The life histories of a few common insects should also be rendered familiar by rearing the insects in breeding cages. I do not recommend this subject to all teachers, nor to all amateur naturalists. Some knowledge, skill, and experience are called for, and the study is better suited to a small class of elder pupils than to a large class of beginners. Many of the characteristic features of an insect can be seen by the naked eye or a lens of low power, but this is not quite enough. It is sometimes indispensable to examine minute parts, such as jaws or air tubes. We have found it a simple matter to fit a low microscope objective, two inches or one inch, to the lantern, and this makes it possible to show to a whole class at once every detail which is likely to be profitable to young students. We may, I think, anticipate that the facilities which the optical lantern affords will soon be more widely turned to account, and that the higher elementary schools, at least, will before long be provided with the means of demonstrating to a number of pupils simultaneously the most necessary details of animal and plant structure. An elementary knowledge of optics, or a few trials, are necessary to put the objective into its right place. The lantern objective is removed, and the microscopic objective substituted for it. A stage carrying the object comes outside the objective, and all the parts are placed as in the compound microscope when arranged for work. The next point to be considered is how to absorb a large part of the heat rays concentrated upon the object, which would soften the mounting medium or scorch the object itself. A glass tank filled with water was first used. This is liable to the objection that when the water grows warm, bubbles appear, and the water becomes more or less opaque to light. Glycerin was next tried, with far better results. My colleague, Dr. Stroud, suggested that the right liquid to employ is that which is used for mixing with the mounting medium. If, for instance, turpentine or wood spirit is employed to dilute the Canada balsam of the preparation, turpentine or wood spirit must be put into the heat-absorbing tank. The rays which are most readily absorbed by the mounting medium will then be absorbed in advance. We have tried this plan with excellent results and consider the heat difficulty as disposed of. The tank should be made in one piece, and the operator should remember that turpentine and wood spirit are very flammable. Our tanks were made by York Glass Company. It is a pleasure to acknowledge the skill and kindness of my colleague, Dr. Stroud, who devised the simple but excellent lantern microscope which we now use. The cockroach of the kitchen, which like the frog or the crayfish, is one of the martyrs of science, may be taken for a first lesson on insect structure. Distributing dead specimens to the class, we note the external features of an insect. The body is defended by an external armor, composed of a substance resembling horn in texture, but differing from horn in composition. This substance is called chitin, 
It is one of the very few components of the bodies of animals which can resist the action of boiling alkalis, however strong. For the sake of flexibility, the chitinous armor is divided into segments, and these segments are united by membranous junctions, where the chitinous covering, though not interrupted, becomes thin and flexible. The segments are grouped into three regions, head, thorax, and abdomen. There are three pairs of legs, one pair to each segment of the thorax. The head is furnished with a pair of feelers, a pair of compound eyes, and biting jaws, which will be seen very indistinctly in the whole cockroach. Along the sides of the body, in the thin membranes which unite the segments, are the breathing holes, or spiracles, but these cannot be well seen without special preparation. We can next show, by means of the lantern microscope, further details which require enlargement. The head of a cockroach may be prepared for demonstration in this way. Cut it off, hold it between the finger and the thumb, pass a scalpel into the mouth, press the edge upwards, and thus divide the head into a front and a back half. Boil these in a solution of caustic potash, 10%, for a quarter of an hour or more, then soak in water, changing the water now and then until the potash is completely removed. Get rid of the water by soaking in methylated alcohol, afterwards in absolute alcohol, and lastly in turpentine. Mount in balsam, and the preparation is ready. Some days should, however, be allowed for hardening before any balsam preparation is put into the lantern. Watch glasses may be used to hold costly fluids like absolute alcohol. Put the front half of the head into the lantern. Observe the large compound eyes made transparent by the potash, the long many-jointed antennae, the mandibles with their strong tooth-like prominences, and the labrum, a flap which covers in the front of the mouth. A close observer can tell by the details of the antenna whether the head so displayed is that of a male or of a female cockroach. Next, put the hind half of the head into the lantern. Point out that there are now seen two other pairs of jaws called maxillae. The fore pair of these are quite separate from one another. The hind pair are smaller and united at the base. Each of the four maxillae bears a slender, jointed palp, which is used by the insect to examine its food. How does the palp differ in the two maxillae? What are the most obvious differences between the feeding organs of a cockroach and those of a man, a snail, a crayfish, or any other animal known to the class. One of the legs may be mounted in the same way and shown by the lantern microscope or studied with a simple lens. Do not plague a class of children with Latin names for the joints of the legs and do not name them at all unless you foresee that the names will be necessary or at least convenient in the present stage of your work. Extend the wing covers and wings if your cockroach possesses them. In the common cockroach of the kitchen, only the male has them well developed. The large American cockroach, which is now supplied by many dealers, has the wings well developed in both sexes. Note that the forewing, wing cover, is attached to the mid-thorax and the hind wing to the hind thorax. The wing covers, if well developed, are stiff and cannot be folded. When at rest, one overlies the other. The membranous wings are folded fanwise. The female of the common cockroach has short and quite useless wing covers, and instead of wings, we find only a slight branch pattern, stamped, as it were, upon the back of the thorax. The upper half of a cockroach abdomen, which has been cleared with potash, may be displayed in the lantern. Observe the segments, the flexible membranes by which they are united, and the pair of jointed tails which project behind. The tails have probably some real use, but it would be hard to explain what it is. Some have thought that they serve as feelers in the dark recesses where the cockroach lurks, 
and give warning of the approach of dangers from behind. In a cricket, they look very like a hind pair of antennae. The breathing organs of an insect are more easily demonstrated in a caterpillar than in a cockroach. It is easy to prepare a piece of the integument of one side, which will, with the help of the lantern, display the spiracles with admirable clearness. The branched air tubes may be exhibited either in the form of a microscopic preparation or a photograph from the same. The alimentary canal of a cockroach and a great part of its nerve cord can, if desired, be mounted as lantern slides. The simple lens is an excellent aid to the study of insect structures. A lens, magnifying five or six diameters and suitably mounted, is not expensive. White's of Wetzler makes a good one for eight shillings. But where handicraft is practiced, it is better to buy nothing but the glass lens and make your own dissecting microscope in the school. See Schoen's Through a Pocket Lens. The study of enlarged preparations and of living insects may be accompanied or followed by some such remarks as follow. What is an insect? An insect belongs to the large group of arthropod animals, which all have the body defended by a jointed chitinous armor. Not only the body, but the legs also are jointed, hence the name arthropod, which means with jointed feet. Among the arthropods which are not insects come the crayfish and other crustaceans, the spiders and scorpions, the centipedes and millipedes. An insect is sufficiently defined as a six-legged, air-breathing arthropod. The air tubes of insects. All insects are air breathers. It is true that some are so entirely aquatic during their early stages as to possess gills. The bloodworm is a common example, but every adult insect breathes by taking in gaseous air. The chief purpose of the wing stage in an insect is the dispersal of the eggs, and this purpose would usually be defeated altogether if the egg-laying insect could not range through the air. No insect breathes by taking in air through its mouth. The same thing is true of the greater part of animals. It is only vertebrates which breathe through their mouths. An insect has a row of holes along the sides of its body through which air is admitted or expelled. The holes, spiracles, are defended by valves and sometimes by an elaborate fringe of branched hairs which not only exclude dust but water. You may have observed that when an insect falls into water, it does not speedily drown. Its spiracles exclude the air sufficiently long to give it fair time to wriggle out. Have you ever seen an insect breathing? A bee or wasp moves the joints of its abdomen in and out, bending or straightening them at the same time. Some other insects raise or depress the upper surface of the abdomen. Whatever the action, it has the effect of alternately enlarging and contracting the cavity of the body. It is not enough to provide a series of holes. The air must be forcibly driven along through them and along the air tubes into which they lead. For this purpose, it is necessary that the insect should be able to close the inlets tightly. Unless the air is put under pressure, it cannot be forced along narrow passages, and it cannot be put under pressure so long as it is free to escape. Just within the spiracle, the air tube leading inwards is made to pass through a clip, and by means of the clip, the air tube can be throttled at pleasure. This is always done before the body cavity contracts. The blood which fills the cavity transmits the pressure to the walls of the air tubes and drives the air into the ultimate recesses. Examination of the tissues of an insect's body shows that they are traversed and overlaid by air tubes, which branch continually until they become extremely fine. A thread, wound spirally round every tube, acts like the iron wire often used to line a flexible gas pipe. 
In both cases, the spiral thread prevents the tube from kinking when sharply bent. Insect Transformations One of the best known and most interesting peculiarities of insects is the transformation which so many of them undergo. Most of them pass the chief part of their lives as larvae or grubs and do all their feeding and growing in this stage. Then they turn to flies and lay their eggs. Many, but not all, pass through a resting stage just before they acquire wings. Two questions call for consideration at this point. Why should so many insects get wings before they lay their eggs? Why does a resting stage so often precede the wing stage? Wings are necessary, I believe, to all insects which are very particular about the place where they lay their eggs. Suppose that a particular caterpillar will feed only on the leaves of buckthorn. If the female moth lays all her eggs on the tree where she herself was reared, that tree will soon be overstocked, while there may be plenty of other trees of the same species which are untouched. It would evidently be far safer, if many generations are to be reared in succession, that the eggs should be laid a few together on a number of trees. Now a creeping insect could not manage this. It would exhaust itself to no purpose in seeking fresh plants. But if the egg-laying moth can fly, and if it is furnished with acute senses, it can make its way to plant after plant and distribute the eggs widely. It will be a work of time to lay eggs in a number of different places, and the moth which undertakes the task must be able to feed for some days at least. It would never do for her to depend upon the coarse vegetable food on which she subsisted as a larva. That would weight her body and interfere with her flight, besides taking up too much of her time. The sweet and nutritious juices of flowers are much more suitable. They can be sipped rapidly, and the weight is insignificant. Change of food brings with it a change of mouthparts. The insect discards the biting jaws of the caterpillar and acquires a new sucking proboscis. The sucking proboscis leads to yet further complications, for there will be an interval during which the old mouthparts are out of gear, while the new ones are not quite ready for use. Change of food leads, therefore, to a resting stage. But among the moss and other winged insects, we find one here and there which does not require to scatter its eggs widely, and such insects as these sometimes lose their wings altogether. The female vaporer moth is a well-known example. Here, the caterpillar is not at all particular about its food. The leaves of most garden shrubs and trees suit its taste. Moreover, this caterpillar can run about very well. In this case, therefore, all the eggs may be safely laid in one place, and the female need not fly at all. Evidently, her ancestors used to fly, for the stumps of wings can still be discerned on her back. The male vaporer flies very well, and both male and female still go through their resting stage. The size of insects. Insects are small animals. A very large beetle may measure four and a half inches in length, but this includes a long horn. One of the longest stick insects, so called because the body and legs resemble dry sticks, may be nearly a foot long, but the weight of such an insect is by no means great. Some dragonflies are about six inches long, and there are some moths whose wings can expand to about a foot. None of these relatively enormous insects are found in this country. What the exact size of the smallest insect may be, I cannot tell. I have seen a full-grown parasitic fly escape from an insect egg, which was not distinctly visible to the naked eye. The small size of insects throws some light upon their extreme ingenuity. Being unable to defend themselves or to attack other animals by main force, they have commonly to use artifice instead. The disguises of insects are innumerable. They escape notice by their resemblance to leaves, sticks, bird droppings, 
and an infinity of other objects. They creep into crevices or spin together particles of sand, wood, leaves, and shells. Many of them, when alarmed, sham dead. Though few insects are formidable to other animals by reason of their biting power, many can sting, injecting a poison into the minute wound which they make, a poison which is far more dreaded than the wound itself. The Strength of Insects There is a widespread but quite mistaken impression that if fair allowance is made for their small size, insects will be found to be the very strongest of animals. Kirby and Spence tell us that a cockchafer, allowing for a difference of size, is six times as strong as a horse, and they confirm the estimate of Linnaeus that if the elephant were as strong in proportion as the stag beetle, he would be able to level mountains. Such statements as these are based on the supposition that if one animal is ten times as long as another, it should be able to draw or lift ten times as much, but this is altogether fallacious. If the larger animal were identical in shape and build with the smaller one, it should be a hundred times as strong, while it would weigh a thousand times as much. The proportion of muscular strength to weight falls, therefore, as the size increases, and before long the animal would, as a mere consequence of increased size, become incapable of moving its body at all. It is only because the horse is expressly adapted to large size by its mechanical construction and actuated by muscles of far greater power that it compares so well as it does with an insect. If it resembled an insect in build and composition, we may safely predict that it could not even stand. The Abodes of Insects The versatility of insects is very great, as a glance at their places of abode shows. There are insects which live in the earth, on trees, in ponds and streams, in torrents, in the sea, in brine pits, on glaciers and snowfields, in hot springs which scald the hand. A small beetle will live and multiply for years in a bottle of argoyle, crude potassium tartrate, drawing its whole nourishment from that uninviting substance. More than one insect finds its home and its food in the living colonies of the freshwater sponge. A leaf is not too thin for burrowing larvae of many kinds. Many caterpillars and fly larvae run their tortuous galleries between the upper and lower epidermis of bramble leaves, buttercup leaves, and many others, pupating in the excavated space and emerging as moths or flies, having accomplished their whole growth at the expense of a small fraction of the living cells which are contained in a single leaf. Insects and Honey Honey is a product worked out by insects and flowers for their mutual advantage. The flowers contribute more than the insects, for they can apparently make a little honey by themselves, but the cooperation of insects was necessary to the extensive and profitable natural industry which has sprung from such unimportant beginnings. Honey occurs in nature either as bee honey or flower honey. It is not known for certain that these two kinds differ in any material respect. The honey bee collects sweet juices from flowers, stores them in its crop and in large part of the gullet, and then disgorges them into a comb made ready for the purpose. One thing which makes us believe that the honey is not digested before being disgorged is that it differs so much according to the plants from which it has been obtained. Clover, heather, orange blossoms, labiate flowers, mint, rosemary, and the like affect the taste, smell, color, and consistency of the honey. Honey from poisonous flowers is sometimes itself poisonous. Such differences would not be likely to occur if the honey had been really digested. How did plants come to make honey? The possibility of such a thing arose when green plants found out how to decompose carbonic acid in presence of sunlight. Sugar then appeared in the cells, and was ready to be excreted whenever a sufficient reason should exist. 
Various parts of green plants exude sugar, leaves, leaf stalks, etc. And the next step, namely the exudation of sugar at the base of the floral leaves, is not a very great one. If insects, attracted to the flower by the hope of pollen, happen to find honey as well, that would be a powerful motive for coming again. The flowers which had secreted the honey would get their seeds fertilized more readily than others, and thus would be founded that alliance between flowers and insects, which is now so well established that many flowers cannot set their seeds at all if insects are kept off by a muslin net. It only remained to bring the mechanism to perfection. The honey became more abundant, exuded only at the time when the pollen was ready for transference, and was not only protected more and more carefully from rain and marauders, but placed just where it would ensure fertilization. The perfume, which is so powerful an aid in attracting insects, is usually only the perfume of the honey itself. The insects on their side acquired an increased appetite for honey and increased expertness in finding it. Their crops enlarged. They learned how to make storehouses for their honey, using first of all, it may be, natural cavities, then cells of earth, clay, or impure pollen, and lastly, cells of wax. The wax was no doubt at first very impure and used very sparingly, as is still the case with the less expert insects. The most advanced bee communities use it in large quantities, though always with the most scrupulous economy. The process of wax making by hive bees leaves no doubt that they make it out of honey, how I cannot tell. Some palms and other plants are also able to make wax out of sugar. Upon the possibility of making wax and storing honey is founded the whole economy of the more complex bee societies. Ants, though they are fond of honey, have not got so far as to make wax. They early took a line of their own, gave up the regular exercise of flight, most of them losing their wings altogether, and thus, while gaining greater facility in underground work, relinquished all the chief advantages of a close cooperation with flowering plants. Flies are often honey-seekers, and a few flies have powerfully affected the structure of certain flowers, but in general they are inexpert at this work, and seldom secure for themselves a monopoly of a particular source of honey, as bees and moths so often do. Injuries Done by Insects Long chapters have been written, among others by those excellent old naturalists, Kirby and Spence, on the injuries and benefits which we receive from insects. Nearly all our crops are injured by insects, and sometimes the injury amounts to destruction. We may see the gooseberry bushes stripped of their leaves year after year, apples often fall half-grown to the ground, or are cankered at the core as the result of insect attacks. Time would fail, even, to name the insects which prey upon the most useful of our plants. Let us just mention the locust, the wireworm, the turnip fly, and the various sorts of beetles called weevils as pernicious examples. Stores of grain, furs, skins, woolen fabrics, and other valuable products are continually ravaged by insects. The white ants of tropical countries and our native clothes moths are notorious for the mischief which they do. Certain insects cause great damage by their attacks on cattle, sheep, and horses, while a few are harmful or even deadly to man himself. It has been discovered of late years that malarial fevers are due to the bite of a gnat. When it pierces the skin to draw blood, the gnat introduces a microscopic parasite from its own salivary gland. In human blood, the parasite multiplies prodigiously, and by penetrating the blood corpuscles, sets up the fever. Other gnats, in turn, become infected, by drawing blood from malarious patients, and so the round is kept up. It is probable that several formidable diseases are propagated by different insects. 
Benefits Received from Insects The list of benefits conferred by insects is not so long, but it includes some that we could ill spare. Insects are one great agent for the destruction of corrupting substances of many kinds. In visits to sewage works, I have been struck by remarking how much putrid matter is turned into small flies and scattered harmlessly over the face of the country. Insects yield the favorite food of many birds and fishes, which we prize as useful or agreeable. Insects yield honey, wax, cochineal, lac, and silk. But I suppose that the chief benefit which we draw from the existence of insects springs from their activity in the fertilization of flowers. Many useful and beautiful plants would cease to ripen seed at all if it were not for the visits of insects. The Numbers of Insects More insects have been described by naturalists than animals of all other kinds put together, and many sorts of insects are extremely plentiful, so that it is not unlikely that a majority of the animals now living on the surface of the globe are insects. The only doubt relates to microscopic creatures, far smaller even than insects, and nobody can at present even guess how many of these there may be. Insects and Man The surface of the earth is a battlefield on which a vast number of animals strive with one another for space and room. The advantage in this contest is by no means necessarily with the powerful. Numbers and artfulness have often prevailed over strength. It would seem as if the struggle was bound to remain forever undecided, were it not that in the last ages an agent of mighty power has appeared before whom many of the combatants seem unable to make an effective stand. The great beasts of prey die out where he establishes himself. Animals with hoofs and horns are enslaved by him and made to do his work. All creatures that interfere with his purposes find in him a steady enemy, whose plans are handed down from generation to generation. This enemy is man, who alone among animals can record his experience and take counsel with kindred whom he has never seen. There is no chance for the biggest and fiercest animals in rivalry with man. It remains to be seen whether or not the most insignificant of animals can hold out against him by reason of their numbers and the ease with which they escape notice. Somebody has lately been so bold as to propose that mankind should undertake the extermination of the whole race of insects, sparing, I suppose, the honeybee and perhaps one or two others of undeniable utility. Whether it is desirable to extirpate the insects or not, I will not consider just now, but will content myself with remarking that their prodigious numbers, their powers of flight, and their wide distribution make the task of extermination infinitely more difficult than any enterprise which man has hitherto accomplished or even undertaken. I have sometimes thought that in an isolated country like Britain it might be possible to exterminate a particular farm insect, at any rate for a time, by prohibiting for a whole year the growth of the crop on which it subsists. There are not many injurious insects which are absolutely restricted to one food plant, but there appear to be some. The difficulty which I foresee in extirpating a single species of noxious insects makes me very indifferent to a project for the extirpation of insects in general throughout the world. We shall have plenty of time to weigh the consequences before it becomes a matter of practical business. End of chapter 45